Well, in hindsight, it, it might have been a little bit cruel to ask someone to do this for the first time when it requires pronouncing the word shitim. <laughs> but Mary did an amazing job. Yes. Um, if you're just joining us this morning, we are in Advent now, and we are in a sermon series we're calling The Mother of, Mothers of Jesus, where we are looking at the incredible stories of the four women who are included in Jesus' genealogy as written in Matthew chapter 1. And we're doing so because Advent is about waiting. It's about sitting in the stillness and the uncertainty and the discomfort of living in a fallen world and actually stopping to not be distracted by all the things that, would love, that, we, that we love to use to escape it. And we're looking at these four women's stories in particular because they dramatically and radically upset what we think we know about what worth is, what it means to be qualified as, as lovable, all of these things. And so this morning we were talking about uh, what we wait for, that we wait for judgment. And, and specifically in the story of Rahab, as Merritt read this morning. Now, the word judgment has, oh man, to say that the word judgment has baggage is, is like saying, I kind of enjoy using Lord of the Rings illustrations. Like, it's, it's, it is, this is a really hard topic. It's a really hard word to explore and to see that it might actually be a good thing and never mind something that we should be actively anticipating and waiting for eagerly. And yet, um, the, the passage that was read by Merritt just a minute ago is actually significantly easier compared to what is to come. So, to kind of give some context for this, Joshua, the book of Joshua begins right after the end of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books in the Old Testament. And it start, the narrative picks up where the, the book of Exodus leaves off. Right? So, so Israel has been rescued from Egypt under the enslavement of Pharaoh, and they are being delivered from the wilderness into the promised land, into what is modern-day Israel. But there's a problem, because there are people who don't want to give up that land, and the way in which that happens is extremely uncomfortable for us. And by extremely uncomfortable, I mean um, strikes at every ethical sense that we as modern people have. And so the summary of that, you can, you can read in chapter 6 of Joshua. I'm going to read verses 21 and 25, because this is about as good a summary as you can possibly have. It says, then, then they, referring to Israel, and at God's command explicitly, devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But, verse 25, Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. Now, this brings up several questions uh, already, and, and probably even more than these, right? We are dramatically, depressingly too familiar with religious wars. We have never seen in human history a, a religious war that turned out Good, right? We're 
if you are not living under a rock and are even remotely aware of what's going on in the world right now, you know that a religious war has, has re-sparked. And it's not a new war, it's an old one that has resumed um, between especially Hamas and Israel. So how in the world is it okay that God demands and commands this devotion to destruction of Jericho? And how in the world does Israel follow through with it? That's just one question. Another question might be, if God is, as we've talked about this fall, has said, if he is steadfast and loving in his faithfulness, then how is devoting to destruction even loving? How is this not genocide? If you have questions for this Q&A, this is... I'm just trying to anticipate as many of them as possible, right? And also, if Rahab was saved from this, why did God not allow the opportunity for others to be saved from that destruction? At the core of all these questions is something I I, I just more than hinted at it, is a severe discomfort with even the concept of judgment. That that there could be a judgment, that, that, that judgment might be good, but how do we look forward to it when we are so uncomfortable from it? Right? We, we love to quote to one another, especially when the one another is judging us, uh, Jesus' own words, thou shalt not judge. And how is Christmas even remotely about judgment? I thought it was about sweet baby Jesus, according to Ricky Bobby. The gospel of Ricky Bobby, sorry. Right? There are few events in history that and in the history of redemption that startle modern sensibilities more than this context, more than this passage, more than this narrative. And for reasons that are both commendable in the sense that, like, let me just say, it is very good that we hesitate and should not, and and, and refrain from conducting religious wars, okay? We're going to talk about why that is the case and why this is an exception in a minute, okay? But it also is because we are just really really sheltered and privileged, okay? Now, all that said, let's, let's actually, I, I use a, a quote from, um, uh, completely blanking on her name, <clears throat> uh, Advent devotional, Fleming Rutledge, thank you, Merritt, appreciate that. Um, that Advent requires us to take an honest inventory of darkness. And so that's what we're going to do this morning so that we can understand what it means, like who Rahab is and what it means that she is included in Jesus' genealogy and what Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, might be trying to say in doing so. But let's first ask, who are the Canaanites? Let's ask and get some more context here because this really matters significantly. In Genesis 15, verse 16, um, God tells Abraham, this is the land I'm going to give you. However, I'm not going to yet because it says, and they... Um, referring to Abraham's descendants who will be in Egypt, they will come back here in the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites, which is another uh, way of saying Canaanites, is not yet complete. So it's the same people, and God says, now is not the time, and if anything, your, your descendants are going to spend time in slavery in Egypt Because the iniquity of the Amorites and the Canaanites is not yet complete. So you are going to wait, and it will be hard to wait, to suffer even. 
so that the iniquity, so that it is just to take the land from them. That is fascinating, okay? So 440 years after that, God said that to Abraham, that iniquity becomes very, very complete. complete. It says in Leviticus chapter 18, and the context of this is, this is like where, where God is telling Israel, this is how you're going to live. These are the rules and the law, the Torah that I'm giving you, and, and this is how you're going to live. And in that, in verse 21 of Leviticus 18, it says, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Now, this begs the question, who is Molech? I don't know why, like it would seem strange to give your children to somebody, anybody, but never mind for God to include as part of his law, don't give, this, give your children to this person. That's because Molech is, a, is an idol. He's a, he was a, a false god that the Canaanites believed in. He was a fertility and nature god. Um, some academic experts think he is conflated with or might be the same god referred to as Baal. Um, but we're talking about the same culture and the same religion when we're talking about Molech. And they have actually found... <laughs> they have found bronze statues of a minotaur-looking god that is identified as Molech. And these statues have distended bellies that are empty and hollow that you would put firewood in and you would stoke a fire in. And then the statue's arms are held out like this to receive children. The Canaanite religion was one of infant sacrifice. And there are texts that describe the ritual of this sacrifice that includes the use of loud drums and instruments explicitly and specifically to drown out the screams. That's the worst case scenario in terms of the theories of what, why, what this might mean. The best case scenario is that this is referring to some kind of cultish prostitution that the Canaanites would give their children to to be trained in and then raised in as a cult prostitute, a religious prostitute, because sex is transcendent. This is really uncomfortable for us because we live in a world that says all cultures are created equal, we just have different perspectives. You know, it's, it's interesting, be, I, um, every once in a while to save a little bit of time, don't worry, this is not a sermon written by Chet GPT, okay? But every once in a while, I'll ask him, like, hey, is this right? Like, where do I find this? You know, that kind of a thing. It's like an advanced search function. Um, but I was like, it was interesting. When I was, was trying to find um, sources for this part in particular, ChatGPT says, it's important to remember that um, this is an ancient civilization that believed very differently than us and might have a different perspective on the ethical considerations. And I was like, no kidding. <laughs> right? I say this because we kind of speak out of both sides of our mouth on this. Because on the one hand, every culture is bad, but yet we want to, we, 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 I don't think anybody here is going to hesitate to condemn this practice and think that this was a good thing, right? This is demonic. This is a reflection of the fall and the brokenness of this world, not just in social and cultural senses, but spiritual and deep ways that we don't, 
often understand or notice or recognize or do business with. This practice continued for centuries despite the horror, okay? To the degree that the Phoenicians, which is a, a, a civilization that's probably, you could consider it um, an evolution in the descendants of Canaanites that was still around during the Roman Empire, that their descendants participated and did this too. Hundreds of years, an entire culture formed and shaped by this barbarity. The reason why God told Israel to devote Jericho to, to destruction is because he knew that if that idolatry was not eradicated, if it was not cut off at the root, then it would not just pollute Israel, it would pollute peoples and cultures and civilizations for centuries, if not millennia, afterward. And it did. In fact, if you are familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know that, we're going to talk about this in the book of Judges, but the worship of Moloch and Baal continued and kept popping up like an infection in Israel for centuries after this, in part because Israel didn't do as God commanded. Now, this is the, this is the cultural context. Imagine being a young girl growing up in that time and place. Let's ask that question, actually. Who is Rahab? <laughs> right? How do we understand her story, what might have been motivating her, and how, why she took the actions that she did? See, the, fact, the, only thing, the only fact that we know about her in this uh, passage is that she is a prostitute. We, it, the book of Joshua gives us nothing else in terms of who she is or where she's coming from. Okay? We do know, actually, um, it's funny, it's not often I look up an original Hebrew word and I need to translate the English also, um, but the name Rahab, uh, let's just put it this way, it, 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 is, it means the uh, Hebrew equivalent of loose uh, in morals and continue in that direction, right? It means broad, okay? Jericho, as a city, had been around for a hundred years he withstood other attacks before Israel and from far more powerful nations and city-states. And so Rahab, who lives and is an embodiment of, the, of this world, and it is the only world she could have ever known, would have no reason to doubt that she and Jericho would survive this weird pilgrim army that was so incompetent it got lost in the wilderness for a generation and is now going to threaten a walled city, the most fortified city in the entire region. So why in the world, why in the world did she throw in with them from behind her, the, the safety of her own city walls? Well, we get a hint in verse 11 that, that Merritt read, and I'm going to reread it to refresh our memory on it. She tells the spies, as soon as we heard of it, of how God had delivered them from Egypt and protected them and dried up the water of the Red Sea and all of this, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And remember this, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. 
It is God's power on display. It is his worth as king and as a God that is greater than their gods that ends up melting cities and hearts alike. Now, this is hard for us to appreciate because um, it snowed a little bit this morning, and that did not inhibit any of you from coming. Now, it didn't snow very much, but even when it snows, we have snow plows, we have uh, we have salt. You might have a Subaru. If you live in Colorado, it's a very high chance, right? You can drive on it anyway. It would not have prevented you from coming because you live in a culture and a society that is accustomed to having already mastered nature. We are used to, our dominant reaction, our primary reaction to the natural world is how do we fix that? Do you know how historically weird that is? That's really only in the last century, singular, single, 100 years, only in the last 100 years might that be the first and primary reaction to weather. Okay, never mind the Red Sea. Molech and Baal and all of the guys, every god of this region was either a fertility god and or a god of nature of some kind. Okay, that was because they were the things that that human beings have long struggled to be able to have any control over whatsoever. So you create a God for it. You create a God for it, okay? When Yahweh delivers his people, a tiny, very recently former slave nation, from captivity, being pursued by the single most powerful empire in the world at the time, by parting the Red Sea, you have a statement of God's power that is greater than and actually happened instead of, we hope this may happen someday. This God is so much higher and so much greater and so much more powerful than Baal or Molech or anyone else. And so what we... I say all this because for Rahab, the parting of the Red Sea was an evangelistic track. It was an invitation. It was a powerful statement that Yahweh is the true creator, the only one and true God. He is worthy of worship, but it's also a Hesed invitation that this God isn't just powerful. He didn't just do this to show off. He did this to protect his people. This lesser people, this lesser nation... It's an invitation for Canaan ahead of Israel's arrival. What's fascinating is in the very next chapter, chapter 3 of Joshua, God does it again with the Jordan River. And they cross into the promised land, rhyming with Moses leading them, but this time it's Joshua. And everyone heard about it. This is what Rahab is saying. Is we all heard how the peoples melted away before him. They heard how Yahweh was this said steadfast in love and faithfulness to his people. And only Rahab thought, I want to be a part of that. Of all of Jericho, it actually, there actually was an invitation. Rahab was not the only one that was invited. Anyone could have done this but only Rahab responded. Now, even still, there is no way, like we can, 
the only thing we know for a fact about Rahab is that she was a prostitute, but we can make some inferences. You would, she would have to be an incredibly strong woman to do so, to be who she was in the midst of a very wicked and evil culture. And she hears God's very different spiritual economy at work within Israel. And so she throws herself at his mercy. And if you compare verse 11, you get, to, it, it, it's, if it sounds familiar, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it should sound familiar because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says this, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Rahab said, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is a confession of faith. And she hasn't even seen God. She hears about his story of deliverance. And she is grafted into the lineage of Jesus himself. She becomes David's great-great-grandmother. Now, this is Rahab's story. And that may help some to understand what's going on here. But it doesn't answer the question of what good is judgment. Never mind why Rahab would be waiting for it nor why Rahab is included in Jesus' genealogy. So let's tackle that and ask, what good is judgment? Um, to, to answer that question, I want to I read an, an, one more passage from the book of Joshua to help us understand what's going on here. And it's from Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. I've said before, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and it is amazing. Um, when Joshua, This takes place after what we read this morning. When Joshua was by Jericho... He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? Pause. Who of us would not ask the same question, <laughs> right? Who, ask, who of us would not ask, which side are you on? And he said, No. I reject the premise of your question. No, he doesn't say that. That's what's implied. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, we refer to this person as the angel of the Lord, but every single time someone responds to uh, the angel of the Lord in Scripture, or a, a, an angel in Scripture, the angels are always very particular in, in a, and intentional in saying, hey, uh, I'm not God. You should stop worshiping me. This is a bad idea. Okay? This time, and the only one who, has, who ever says, take off your, stand, your sandals and you're on holy ground, is God himself. Okay? He says, no, your response is incorrect. You should worship me. We understand this is actually a pre-incarnate uh, visitation of Jesus, that he actually showed up. Now, I know we're talking about judgment and, and a judge, but it, it is good, when we think about the word judge and judgment, we think about like law and order, right? 
courtroom drama, okay? A judge in the Old Testament sense was, a, was more of a chieftain or maybe a military kind of commander who uh, arbitrated disputes and was more king-like than we are used to considering them. And what this passage, this in, in particular, helps us see is that, first of all, number one, judgment implies the existence of a judge, right? Somebody has to do the judging, but we're not him. We are not him. Um, This is uncomfortable for us, the idea that there might be a judge or that judgment might be good. And I mentioned this earlier, but um, there's a pacifist and a theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf who's, who grew up in war-torn, genocidal S- Serbia. His dad was actually a pastor and who was killed during that genocide. And he says this, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. He's a pacifist. Jesus doesn't command us to thou shalt not judge because judgment is bad, but because we are. We are terrible judges. We want, to, we want Jesus to be on our side and not our enemy's side. We don't pause long enough to ask whether we are on his or our own. It is not our job, okay? We are hopelessly unqualified. Our hope is that God is perfectly holy and qualified. And this this pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus I am convinced, and, and this is not unique to me, this is not new. Anything, anything theologically new is often heresy. Just hot takes are not a thing in this area, okay? Um, Jesus is personally taking command of the army so as to make it very clear that this is a historically unique thing. It has never happened before and has never happened since. God had never tells his people to conduct a holy war, period, okay? That's it, and it is because We are not good, but he is. Now, Rahab quickly understood what it took Jesus showing up to Joshua to make clear. And that is that Yahweh is a king and a creator beyond our comprehension. And that he is a greater judge than we could ever hope to be. She knew what the angel of the Lord taught Joshua without ever seeing or having to hear from the angel of the Lord. She didn't have any hope. She knew she had no hope of getting God on her side because he wasn't on anyone's side but his own. But she needed to be on his. And so her being included in Jesus' genealogy is this giant neon sign telling anyone who reads or hears Matthew's words that this king This Jesus, born at Christmas Day, this is the king who is coming to judge the world and that that is very good news, okay? The second good that judgment is, is that God's judgment provides moral clarity in the midst of moral confusion, right? Now, I I said we were gonna talk about this in a second and this is where we're talking about it. That in the book after Joshua is a book called Judges. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, it is a wild ride, okay? There's, there are so many incredibly 
both dark and insane stories that happen in the book of Judges. But um, the entire book is essentially about what happens to Israel because they failed to devote to destruction what God has called him to. And so they end up abandoning Yahweh and following the Canaanite religion and following Molech and Baal. And it is a dumpster fire that only grows into a bigger, like, dumpster fire of dumpster fires. It's just, it is like, hold my beer with every single successive story, okay? But the refrain, there's almost this course, it repeats itself, and it's this insane summary statement that should send chills up our spine. And it says that in those days, Israel had no king and did what was right in their own eyes. If the similarity between that three thousand year old statement and the modern you do you doesn't make you hesitate, I don't know how else to persuade you how timely and relevant scripture is and timeless scripture is, right? Let me put it this way. If we think that that is something that only Israel struggled with back then, we are fooling ourselves because we may not worship gods named Moloch and Baal, but we do worship gods named autonomy and freedom. Okay? I say this because we don't sacrifice children in the name of fertility, but we do sacrifice our unborn in the name of choice. And increasingly in Canada and Europe, at least, if, if not this country, we sacrifice the elderly and the disabled in the name of mercy. And I'm just, like, that is blasphemy. It makes a mockery of mercy and kindness and grace. It says that the image of God is something that we earn and have to prove our worth in and is not something that might actually be owed to us by virtue of God creating us. That is something that we receive. Now, if you are worried about whether this sermon is going to continue down that road, rest easy because it's not, okay? Because that's not my point. Some of you are hearing that, me say that, and you might be pumping your fist internally, if not in your seat, because you think I just confirmed for you that God is on your side. Others of you are hearing that, and you might already be drafting an email in your head to inform me that I'm not on the right side of history, Okay. To both of you, I would say you're missing the point that we cannot hear that and we cannot have a response to that that is self-righteous but is grieving the state of it. That is not a call for us to go and fight a culture war. It's a call for us to take our sandals off and worship and ask God to deliver us from brokenness, fallenness, wickedness, and evil, including that which is in our hearts. Because as Andrew Solzhenitsyn said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years, and even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. Neither self-righteous gloating nor self-righteous indignation is anything other than wearing sandals on holy ground. I say this because 
the definition of self-righteousness is, is, is an earning of merit that we think we have achieved or done on our own by our actions, whether that's an actual and explicit outward behavior or just an internal belief that we have the right beliefs. We can either be Joshua and think that we do that by our merit, or we can be Rahab and be rescued by God's mercy. But only the latter has the honor of being in Jesus' genealogy. But also, it's not just about us. right? It's not just about us being justified before God or before each other. It's also because clarity is a gift to someone i.e. Rahab, who was likely given into her current vocation, if not enslavement, by her father into cult prostitution. And it is not kind or loving to say, this is okay. What's kind and loving is to say, it's not okay, and God has said is not for people who are okay. It's for those of us who are Rahab. We are all needy. And that should radically humble us, both in our posture toward what is right and wrong in terms of that moral clarity, but as well as our posture toward those who we think are wrong. That is the evidence of grace. Lastly, what good is judgment is that God's judgment isn't fair. And neither is grace. You see, when we think about the word grace, we forget that judgment, judgment is not mutually opposed to or exclusive with grace because grace is a verdict of judgment, right? It, by definition, it implies, grace implies that we've done something to deserve a guilty verdict but are declared innocent anyway. Somebody is treating us better than we deserve, it implies judgment. And if we, if, we, if we try to have grace without judgment, we actually lose grace too. Because we need the declaration and the verdict of grace. Badly, desperately, to be more depraved than we ever dare consider and more fully loved than we could possibly ever fathom is actually the only way out from under merely human judgment. Otherwise, we, have, we are left, and by the way, whether that's our judgment of ourselves that crushes us, or the judgment of others that we don't feel like we can ever escape because our past haunts us and our behaviors are not always just or justified. We have exactly two options outside of grace, as we can either be crushed by the weight of expectation and not being able to meet up, uh, live up to the standard, or we are puffed up because we've lowered the standard so that we can meet it. And it's tempted, again, to absolve Rahab because we, we want to offer that grace and that kindness. But I'm telling you, that's actually how we do so, is avoiding that temptation. Because Rahab was an active participant in the complete iniquity that, that God told Abraham needed to happen, and she deserved Jericho's fate. But she was not just spared. Like, this is the incredible part, guys. She was not just spared, but in Hebrews 11, she is listed among the patriarchs of Genesis as a hero of the faith. She had less reason than any of us to ever think that this might be the source of her salvation, and yet she saw enough of it to give herself over to it. 
She personifies the hope of redemption, not just for others who witnessed her salvation, but for millions, untold millions of people who have read her story since and who wonder and maybe struggle or doubt whether they could be possibly be loved by God because of how unlovable they are. And in Rahab, they see hope. In other words, her unworthiness only makes God's love more incredible and more possible for us. When we think about this in the light of, man, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think we've, I don't, we live in a time in, in history when the fault of others and ourselves has never been more obvious and public and clear. We need Rahab included in this genealogy. The church needs Rahab included in Jesus' genealogy because it's the hope of Rahab that it is not the bride's beauty that makes her lovable, it is Christ's love that makes her beautiful. Let me say this before we, we, we go into the Q&A, but I want to I, I wrap this up by saying that judgment is part of the gift of Christmas. Judgment is part of the gift of Christmas. And it's because Christmas itself, if everything I've said is true, and I wouldn't say it because if I didn't think it was, Christmas is a declaration of war on darkness, on everything that enslaves, on everything that robs us of hope. What we understand because of this, this pre-incarnate uh, visitation of Jesus, and what we understand because of the way that, that God saved Rahab in the midst of this is that this was not just a battle between Israel and Jericho. This is a battle between Yahweh and the false gods and idols that enslave humanity. This is what Paul is referring to when he writes to the church in Corinth in, in, in 2 Corinthians when he says that for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, this is what we see in the world around us, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. By the way, that's another reason why there is no justification for religious war or Christian nationalism or any other kind of grace adjective attached to something that is coercive and fascistic but have divine power to destroy strongholds. In other words, because of, Christ, of, of Christmas, Christmas is the greater battle fought than Jericho. God wins this war by coming and dying for his enemies. This is the complete and utter opposite of anything and everything, every other philosophy and every, any other religion or faith in the world. And Christmas was such a threat to darkness that in the book of Revelation, it's pretty stunning. There's a, there's, a, there's a section that describes how the dragon, which symbolizes Satan, is, has opened his maw and is waiting to devour the one that is born on Christmas Day because, because he's a threat. It is not just Israel that is at stake with Jericho and that is pictured in Rahab's salvation. It is a picture of God's mission in, in and to the world to rescue us from ourselves. No matter what 
darkness we may be wrestling with or think we are trapped within, nothing can keep God from saving his people. It's a different kind of Christmas, isn't it? Lastly, Christmas is an invitation of rescue for all Rahabs, and we're all Rahab, spiritually, if not literally. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Moses crossing the Red Sea because God parts the Red Sea is quickly followed with Joshua leading God's people to part, as God parts the, river, the Jordan River. As Israel was delivered from Egypt, Rahab is rescued from Jericho. And oh, by the way, did you notice in the last verse that Merritt read the scarlet cord that is hung in the window to mark her house as safe? Israel, when when trapped and enslaved by Egypt, when God was trying to get Pharaoh to let his people go so that they could worship him, they sacrificed the Passover lamb and spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that the angel of the Lord would pass over their house. She puts a crimson cord in her window so that the angel of the Lord at Jericho, his destruction would not be devoted, so that her house would not be devoted to destruction, but be devoted to the Lord. Christmas is God providing himself, not just the Passover lamb and not just the crimson cord, but the Lamb of God, the King who descended to sacrifice himself to rescue his enemies. It is not just God rescuing his people because all of his people are like Israel. We are all prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. And God rescues us from ourselves and from the darkness that cuts across every human heart. And that includes a world that's hell-bent on sacrificing each other in order to justify ourselves. If this is your first Sunday here, welcome. I would say that we don't get this real all that often, but I would actually be lying. Um, And I'm sure that the questions that are being asked and sent in via text are going to illustrate that exactly, all seven of them. Cool. Um, Yeah. Okay, can you explain how there was an invitation to others in Jericho than just Rahab? Yeah, let me fill that out a little bit more. Rahab was saying that we all heard that this had happened, that, that Israel had crossed the Red Sea by God parting the Red Sea. But also, when Jericho falls, it is because God tells Joshua to march their army and with the ark at its head around Jericho seven times. That's a billboard. It's a billboard sign saying, here's your chance. And he did it for seven days. And and each time, there was space in between an opportunity. That was God inviting Jericho to repent. Okay? Next question, because we have a lot. Um, Okay, this one has more than one question. How do we know that the invitation was for all of Jericho, not merely Rahab? Um, So just to expound, just... Another point on this, um, that is what parading the presence of your God is in the ancient Near East. Like, it's not clear to us, but that would have been very obvious to anyone and everyone who read that. That was what they were doing because 
God told Abraham that I will be a blessing to you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. The implication is that, is that when you see God's faithfulness to his people, you are seeing the faithfulness of God and his invitation to participate in it. That is Israel's story. And it is despite their complete tomfoolery, and that's putting it lightly, with, very ling- with language my dad would use, but still, um, that is, it's actually meant to exaggerate and to, to amplify his faithfulness and the, 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 how merciful this God is. So that was, that was understood. Um, do you think Baal is the modern idol? Do most of worship either fertility or nature, astronomy, instead of the one true God is... Hmm. I'm not actually sure what this question is asking. I'm very sorry. I'm going to go to the next one. Um, are activists in our world taking judgment into their own hands instead of relying on the judgment of God? Oh, man. Um, look. Uh, Can I push back on the premise of this question a little bit? Activism isn't the problem, guys. It's the motive. Okay? There is activism that is genuinely for the good of neighbor, and there's activism that is genuinely for the good of neighbor and isn't good for our neighbor, and then there's some that is. Okay? I cannot answer this question in either direction because, one, the premise is incomplete, at least, but also because I can't know God's heart, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the judge. The only thing I know and the only thing I can say is I see in my own heart a motive to be activistic and to say what is good and what should be done in ways that make me look good. And in ways that make me feel good because, I'm on God, because God's on my side. And I would just encourage us all to not have a light switch, yay or nay, attitude toward activism, but to question and to ask questions, both of our hearts and of anyone that we talk to. But this is, this is just too hard. There's no way I can answer that question accurately. Okay. Last question. Are you saying that we can't ever know whether we'll receive grace or judgment? Man, if I said that we can't know it, know that, I am so sorry. Please, no. In fact, I'm going to use that as a, we're going to jump into communion from there, actually, because... We can know whether we receive grace or judgment. And the entire point of Jesus coming is to provide a declaration that we are given grace as our judgment. Okay? Does that make sense? It's not an either or. We are judged faithful, not because of our faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness. We are judged righteous, not because of our righteousness, but because of God's and Jesus' righteousness. And so when we talk about communion and what Jesus was doing with his disciples at the Last Supper, as he was explaining exactly this, he was explaining that there is nothing we can do to earn this, that in fact we are all Rahab and we need the blood of the Lamb to save us from that. 
right? He said, and this is what he said, he said, on the night that he was betrayed, he was with his disciples, and he said, this bread is my body, and he broke it, and then he took the the wine, and he says, likewise, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. And in saying this, what he's saying is that you actually need a judge who is going to, in grace, because you, I'm going to treat you better than you deserve, I'm going to judge you righteous, even though you're not. But it's because the judge came off the bench to be judged in our stead according to our record. That's what's happening when he says this. That's what he's describing. Because this isn't just a holy judge, this is a loving and good judge who doesn't spare himself from our punishment even. When he says, after that he says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. What he's saying is you are marching with the presence of God around Jericho, because that's what this is, this is the presence of God, when we do communion together, you are inviting every Rahab to see that I am the God in the heavens above and of the earth beneath, both. And when he says, until I return, what he's saying in that moment is that God's judgment in Christ on the cross is mercy. When he returns, that judgment will be justice. Justice and mercy are united, but justice is delayed. That is mercy. So as we wait to say that we are waiting for judgment, we are waiting in the midst of and saturated in and by God's mercy and his grace. That is what we feast on. If that is your hope, if that is your hunger, even just a little bit, this table is for you. In the same way, that we are partaking of, this is actually gluten-free, in case you were wondering, okay? And wine or grape juice, in our partaking of this, we are hanging the crimson cord in our windows. And we are saying, God, we need you. And God is saying, as you take this, you are saved by my love and my grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you more than we know to the degree that we are satisfied and certain that you are on our side, Lord, we need you that much more. I pray, Lord, that you would help, help us to see the freedom of not having to justify ourselves, of not having to save ourselves, of not having to rescue ourselves. Because, Lord, you who parted the Red Seas, who parted the Jordan River, and who parts us from the path of death and into the way of life. Lord, you, you are our rescue. So Lord, nourish us with that truth. We pray this all in your name. Amen.